while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, welcoming you to the Reasonable Voices Blog Talk Radio News Program. My guest today is Dr. Marcus Martin, M.D., of the University of Virginia. Uh, Dr. Marcus Martin has served in a variety of roles in support of diversity and equity at the University of Virginia, including as Assistant Dean in the School of Medicine and as Assistant and Associate Vice President in the UVA Office of Diversity. In 2011, Dr. Martin was appointed Vice President and Chief Officer for Diversity and Equity at University of Virginia. I think that's about the time I met you, or shortly thereafter. But first, welcome to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Program. Marcello, thank you very much uh, for inviting me to be on the program. It's I'm my, very excited. It's my pleasure. I do want to say, uh, I, I just remembered that that was about the time I think I met you, somewhere around that time. But but I do want to mention a little more for people who don't know you. You are, uh, as a native of Covington, Virginia. You that's earned, correct. That's right. You earned bachelor's degrees in pulp and paper technology. I had to right. say that, 1970. <laughs> and chemical engineering, 1971, from North Carolina State University, where you were the first African-American varsity football player. Talk about diversity. Well, how? Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. First of all, I, I'm a little embarrassed because my wife, as you may or may not know, is a professor at University of Virginia in studio art, and she talks about the importance of different paper and and all of that. And you know, I yes. I never really got it. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's uh, awesome uh, work on your part, and you know, reading the bio and, and bringing that information out because. I'm proud to be a Virginian. Uh, I grew up a little over an hour and a half from here, over in Allegheny County, mm-hmm. um, Covington, Virginia. My wife grew up in Clifton Forge. We were the same age, and uh, we grew up doing the Jim Crow era, 
uh, attended all black high schools, all black schools. Mm -hmm. And I had 40 kids in my class, 20 boys and 20 girls. So you got to do everything. I remember, you know, at football games, I would be playing my trumpet in the band with my cleats on and, and football uniform on. I'd have about five minutes uh, after we entertain the crowd. I'd go and get an orange, talk to the football coach, go back on the field and play quarterback on offense and safety on defense. So, you know, doing those types of things gave me uh, the opportunity to participate, to be included. Unfortunately, I couldn't be very good at any of those things, with the exception of math, and I'll tell you why. Okay. I'll tell you why. Great story. So my mom, with a 12th grade education, had uh, many siblings. Or her father, unfortunately, was killed by a train when she was very young. So she and her siblings didn't, did not get a chance to go to college. But she had, you know, high school education, and uh, she was very bright. And her five kids, including me, she, she pushed us to the limit. And I was helping her on her insurance route. That's how she made part of the living, and my father worked at a laborer at the paper mill, I'll tell you about him in a minute. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was a middle schooler, and uh, maybe up a level in middle school. I'd ride with her, we'd go collect insurance money, and then we'd come back to the house and have to do the accounting. Uh -huh. I would use an old-fashioned crank calculator to put those numbers in, oh, and I couldn't yes. make any mistakes, because uh -huh. when she submitted her report to the insurance company, if we were off, you know, if we didn't report the correct number, she would likely have to pay money out of her pocket or we would, you know, just lose money. Yeah. So I came to love math, <laughs> came very competitive yeah. with it, and um, did well in high school, got good grades, and fortunately there was a um, scholarship to NC State to study pulp and paper technology, as you mentioned. Oh. Um, I don't think I would have gotten that scholarship without the great work that my dad did at the paper mill. He was a laborer, just like his brothers mm -hmm. and my brothers. And um, so he had a great safety record. And, um, you know, they knew about his children. They knew about me. So I got the scholarship. But I added chemical engineering to it because for some reason to me, just pulp and paper technology by itself, not, you know, quite attractive enough. <laughs> but unbeknownst to me also, by adding chemical engineering, I was going to end up taking 21, 22 credit hours some semesters, and that was insane. Wow, yes. That yeah, is. my first year now, I did play in a band, play trumpet. <laughs> uh, sec second year, I walked into the football team, and you're right, I became the first uh, African-American varsity football player at NC State. I played, you know, a fair amount of time, particularly um, on the kickoff teams, and if we were losing big or winning big, you know, as a, as a safety, a cornerback, I would go in and play. So... But I was included and had a great time. And you know, uh, and certainly not to minimize uh, all of the firsts you have been as an African-American, uh, uh, but I think part of that is you, you yourself are so diverse in your interests and in your accomplishments that, uh, how do you think, I mean, my impression is those two naturally go hand in hand. What are your thoughts? No, you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, during the summers when I was an uh, undergrad student at um, NC State, I had the opportunity to do research at the paper mill and, um, you know, generate more income. And um, it's an extensive process in terms of taking the tree and cutting into chips and separating the, the cellulose, that's the fiber, from the lignin, um, and then processing bleaching so that you come out with, you know, white paper for writing paper or milk cartons. Or, you know, if you don't bleach it, you can use it for brown paper bags or corrugated medium, we call, you know, mm -hmm. um, boxes. And I even um, 
research and processes of recycling newsprint. And in some of the cereal boxes, you'll see a gray lining or liner, and that's the combination of the ink print on the paper and the white paper itself. You know, once it's broken down back into fibers and then processed into to that particular oh, uh, board, you know, yes. that's used in, in, inside the cereal boxes. So for me, having decent grades but not the very best, when it came time to apply to medical school, which mm-hmm. uh, I had not planned until I graduated from NC State and worked as a production engineer for about a year and a half, there was a major accident at the paper mill. And um, I was at that scene just before the accident happened. and mm-hmm. was very blessed that I didn't get hurt. Some of my colleagues ended up with broken bones and third-degree burns, and Indeed. some of them were brought to University of Virginia mm-hmm. uh, for care. At that time, I decided I was good at working with mechanical pumps and fluid dynamics and chemicals like caustic soda, but I thought, man, I think I'd like to work with uh, the human heart. Mm. So I, I applied to Eastern Virginia Medical School, which was a brand new school opening up in the yes. state, Yes. and lo and behold, I was granted uh, admission to the charter class of 24 students. Yes. Now, that's, that's yes. one of those stories that I was very, very fortunate. And when I mentor pre-med students now, I'll advise them to, to apply to 20, 30 or more schools. Mm-hmm. I was just very fortunate that, that the doors were open for me at Eastern mm-hmm. Virginia Medical School. And a lot of it, I think, had to do with the fact that I was doing research during the summertime, and I presented with a can-do attitude and um, they had faith in me, and they gave me a chance. Yes. And so I've been very blessed. Now, you, you were also there. You were the first uh, African-American graduate earning your M.D. in 1976. I got that right. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct, yeah. Um, I entered school in September 1973 and graduated on my mom's birthday in September 1976. Now, September is an unusual time to start. Mm-hmm. Usually, if you're starting in medical school, it you know, could be July or August. Yes. But the school... Um, opened its doors in 73, and it was not, early on in 73, it was not 100% sure that it could actually take in students, um, so it was delayed somewhat, mm-hmm. and uh, it, be, it was a three-year school as opposed to the traditional four years of mm-hmm. study. Mm-hmm. So we studied right through summers, uh, holiday time, you know, we had a few yeah. days for Christmas, and, and that was it. So that was exciting, but it made it um, tough, you know, it yes. was, um, uh, but we studied together, and I was Two African-Americans entered that charter class. One, um, the other person, a male, uh, fell behind, and fortunately later, a few years later, he was able to graduate. But I graduated within that class. Actually, only 23 of us ended up graduating out of the 24. Mm. We lost a few students and we gained a few. But being one a minority amongst the majority of white students, there were only four women and so again, back in the 70s, there weren't that many women in uh, medical school. Now, you know, yes. in most schools, half of the student body uh, is comprised of women. So from the diversity perspective, I walked onto a football team where there were 100 faces, coaches and other players, and I was the only face of color. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot. I was immersed essentially in a different culture. Yes. And I learned, I persevered, um, there was resilience. And then, you know, there's been the other end of the spectrum, just before going to college, being in an all-black environment. And then ultimately, after finishing medical school, going on to become a commission officer in public health service and also um, Indian Health Service on yes. the Navajo Reservation. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, another culture. Oh, another culture, yes. yes. 
So I think the immersion in different cultures prepared me for where I am now yes. as a chief diversity officer. Yes. Wow. That yeah. narrative was so important to hear. And, of course, it's a major part of the reason I asked you to be on the program today. You were also, right. I should make clear, you uh, were the first African-American to head a clinical department at the University of Virginia. You, yes. co- you co-chaired the UVA Health System Diversity Council in 2000, and you were uh, inaugural member of the UVA Women's Leadership Council? Is that... That's correct. All right. Yeah, yeah so finishing um, East Virginia Medical School, I went on to uh, become a commission officer in, in the U.S. Public Health Service, working as an intern in Staten Island at the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital. Then I went on to uh, New Mexico, uh, Gallup, where mm-hmm. I served as a commission officer for um, you know, the Indian Health Service, yes. uh, taking care of um, patients who would come to the hospital in various capacities, whether it was emergency department or uh, whether, you know, pediatric patients and otherwise. And I recall on several occasions delivering babies oh on the back of a flatbed truck right outside of the emergency department, uh-huh. um, learning the culture, learning not to impose uh, my style upon uh, the Native Americans and, and also working with the medicine man. Yes. And in some situations, the women who would come in in labor did not want to come into the hospital. So I've um, delivered babies on the back of flatbed trucks, and then, you know, women were stable enough to go home, they would, they would go home. And there's a lot of other stories I could tell you. We could take the whole hour to I talk know, about. I know, I know. And, you know, and they're, all, they're all such great stories because yeah. I, I, I don't think we are just exclusively uh, fr- uh, nurtured by our natural, uh, our environment, but I do think that has a huge part of things. I, I don't think that uh, everyone gets an opportunity, but I think those who get, who make the most of whatever opportunities they have, and I guess I, what I'm trying to say is I've always been impressed with you, and even though I've read your bio before, when I sit and listen here to you tell your story, it's not surprising, shall I say, without minimizing your accomplishments, I understand, I, I, I hear, listen to you and I go, well, of course he would be all the things you've ended up being. From what I've seen and heard before today even, you are an integral part of the fabric of the University of Virginia, and as such, uh, you have, you've been a part of so many of UVA's accomplishments. I mean, so many, I don't know if we'll get to them all, but, let, but let's try. Explain to us, if you would, the community Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. celebration. Right. So you you were mentioning or mentioned the fact that um, I came to UVA and I was 1996. Yes. I complete residency training in emergency medicine at the University of Cincinnati, the oldest emergency medicine program in the country. Mm. And then there were a series of firsts. Uh, I was became the president of the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine, president of the Council of Residency Directors, and so forth. But you know, spending 15 years at Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh, yes. trained quite a few physicians. Some I recruited here to UVA who are still here. But mm. I came here as the first African American to chair a clinical department in the School of Medicine, and yes. that was the Department of Emergency Medicine. Yes, for ten and a half years. After which. The Office for Diversity and Equity was uh, established. And let me just take a minute to sure. say something about.
about that. Yes. Um, there were a series of uh, bias incidents that took place in the early 2000s, one around 2002, 2003, I believe, when one of our biracial students who is African-American and Asian was accosted when she was running for student council president. And um, then President Castine at the time formed the President's Commission on Diversity and Equity and asked them to study the environment and come back with some recommendations. Mm -hmm. And one recommendation was to establish the Office for Diversity and Equity, uh, among many other recommendations. Yes, I served on a search committee that recruited the first VP and Chief uh, Officer for Diversity and Equity, and that was 2005, uh, Bill Harvey. Uh, he was the VP, started in November, and six months later, I became his assistant and associate VP. So I, I joined the diversity and equity team, and we started with these goals, promote an inclusive, welcoming, and respectful environment, and encourage commitment to diversity and equity in all aspects of academics, extracurricular activity, and in the, the workplace. Yes. Um, yes, and to enhance the student, faculty, and staff experiences. So to enhance or to provide an inclusive, welcoming environment also means to promote some community-related activities and initiatives. Yes. And so when President Sullivan came on board in 2010, uh, she asked if I would work towards expanding the uh, MLK community celebration. Mm -hmm. At that time, prior to 2010, there may have been one or two activities in the city, one or two activities at the University of Virginia. So ultimately, we coordinated around 225 programs during the Community Martin Luther King celebration, two-week mm -hmm. period in January, averaging about 25 programs annually, mm -hmm. which includes uh, guest speakers and panels, panelists, film screenings and art, entertainment in various forms, all to you know honor, reflect, and act on Dr. King's legacy, standing up for justice, reconciliation, and truth. So that's been very successful. The community has been quite engaged. Uh, the planning committee includes students, staff, faculty, uh, members of the community, and alumni. Excellent. We're going to have to take a break now, Dr. Okay. Marcus Martin. When we come back, I also want, I, I want to jump in, if we could, with the President's Commission on Slavery and the yep. University, and of course the Memorial to Enslaved Labors. Uh, stay with us. We'll be right back. We're having a fascinating conversation with Dr. Marcus Martin, MD, University of Virginia. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And now, enjoy Watchfire Music. Featuring vocal artist Julia Wade singing Beautiful from her new CD, Sunday Morning. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. For the Lord is great. in his time 
Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio News Program. My guest today is Dr. Marcus Martin, MD of the University of Virginia. We've talked about his bio in the last segment. There's so much that is so impactful, both for the listeners as well as for those who, who have never met Dr. Martin. I have met him, I've seen him at work, but I am still being extremely moved by his telling his story. I mentioned at the end of the last segment, Marcus, that uh, you've done so much, you are really sort of uh, in the fabric of the yeah. University of Virginia. And and the University of Virginia, I do believe, having you there, has wisely, especially in these the more recent years, the last, uh, what shall I say, maybe 10 years, you correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, it seems to me having you there in a certain capacity, they have expanded things that come very naturally to you. And so talk to us a bit about the President's Commission. And by President, we're talking, of course, about the President of the University of Virginia. Um, yes. The President's Commission on Slavery and the University, because there's a history there that not everyone thinks about. If that, that's correct. And uh, just to tie into what you were saying in terms of the being part of the fabric, having come here in 96 as chair of emergency medicine gave me a good foot into the community. The community would come to the hospital, to the emergency department, and I'll tell people nobody really wants to come to the emergency room. Yes. But if you think about it, people of all walks of life will come in, all human attributes come in to the emergency department. So over time, my sensitivity to, to various cultures yes. increased, and yes. I taught my students uh, in residence and junior faculty, um, some approaches to cultural competency, and also how to recognize biases. And so with that, coming to the Office for Diversity and Equity gave me the opportunity to go more into the community. Yes. The university community, um, we established an LGBT committee, we established yeah. a Disability Advocacy and Action Committee, yeah. and we talked about the MLK Community Celebration Committee. My office coordinates the Women's Leadership Council. There have been a number of other things. Uh, you know, we we hosted 60 dinners with Julian Bond as a guest of honor oh, yes. between 2007 and 2012, inviting a cross-section of the community to come to these dinners, 25 people at a time. So, you know, we essentially brought in 1,600 diverse individuals over that five-year period with Julian telling some stories and so forth. We established new relationships and rekindled old relationships. Ultimately, in 2013, as President Sullivan was here, I approached uh, President Sullivan and her cabinet, being a member of the cabinet, mm-hmm. in April of mm-hmm. 2013, about the idea of establishing the President's Commission of Slavery in the University. I was accompanied by Tierney Fairchild, who at the time was the chairperson for the IDEA Fund, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access. And this is an alumni group that my office established in 2010. Yes. We also had some student leadership for the Memorial, at the time they called themselves the Memorial for Enslaved Laborers, group. Going back to 2007, I'll take you back to that time because uh, 2007, the Virginia General Assembly issued a resolution in regret of slavery and called on all Virginians for reconciliation. In that same year, 2007, the UVA Board of Visitors adopted that resolution and placed a monument right at the southwest corner of the rotunda. Yes. And that memorial to slave laborers is one foot wide by about four foot feet long. And it essentially talks about recognizing the free and enslaved several hundred people mm-hmm. who helped Thomas Jefferson achieve his design for the University of Virginia. And the time frame was a very brief time frame, um, 1817 to 1825, that 
the academical village was uh, erected. Mm. First of all, that falls short in, in terms of image because people step right over that plaque on the ground, yes. don't even know what it is, don't even see it. Yes. Furthermore, slavery didn't end to 1865, mm. uh, March 3rd, here at University of Virginia, where uh, 14,000 enslaved were liberated when Union generals uh, Sheridan and, and Custer marched into town with 10,000 Union uh, Army members and um, the mayor of the Charlottesville and the rector of the University of Virginia, a couple of faculty members, waving the white flag of surrender. Mm-hmm. And so since that time, we've been we've been celebrating Liberation and Freedom Day uh, each March third. Yes. We've done that the last three years. So the picture that I'm painting here is that yes, there was some uh, commemoration or recognition of enslaved laborers uh, back in 2007, but very inadequate. So synergizing the efforts of the Memorial for Slave Labor student groups, other organizations like UCARE, the, the Idea Fund, yes. my office, and other offices, we were able to present to the president this opportunity, and six months later, in September 2013, she established uh, the President's Commission of Slavery University, and I'm served, I served as co-chair, and Kurt Von Dyck in the history department served as co-chair. Yes. Establishing that PCSU, as we call it, President's Commission of Slavery University, we basically added 26 commission members to the commission, students, staff, faculty, alumni, and we created a local and national advisory board and a very important community relations task force that helped us every step along the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, We held community coffees and forums. Uh, We created a documentary, a short one called Unearthed and Understood. develop narrative content and graphic exhibits uh, related to the history of slavery placed in the newly renovated rotunda yes. in that East Oval Room, yes. the Visitor Center. We created a, the Enslaved African Americans of UVA walking tour, a map that just flies out of the rotunda because people love that map. And then uh, we put on several uh, symposia, universities confronting the legacy of slavery, university slavery, public memory, and the built landscape. And that was during the bicentennial gala celebration in 2017, yeah. So we had 61 institutions, 23 states, and the U.K. participating, and about 500 people to come in and participate in this university slavery public memory in the built landscape. Yes. You know, but ultimately, we named some buildings after the enslaved. We planted um, a tree on Founders Day back in 2015 in honor of the enslaved. Mm. We, we established a consortium of universities studying slavery now consisting of 55 schools within the United States, uh, the UK, and Canada, and then some courses. You know, we, we established courses for students to study in the summertime, mm-hmm. high school students, but also doing the regular semester legacy courses on slavery for our undergraduate students. Yes. So it's been a great five, six years now. We ended with a report to President Teresa Sullivan. It's about 91 pages long. And it can be accessed by going to slavery.virginia.edu, or you can just Google President's Commission of Slavery University, and, and the page will come up, and you can see that report. We're ending, in a way, the work of the President's Commission of Slavery University with the erection of the memorial to enslaved laborers. Now, that is a monument that is on equal footing as the rotunda in terms of its diameter. Hmm. It's 80 feet in diameter. It's about 40% complete. Wow. We hope to complete it by the end of the year or early next spring. Uh-huh. Yeah, it'll have an inner ring that's a grassy area where the uh, professors can 
um, teach classes or students can perform. Mm. There can be all sorts of activities there. There will be uh, a wall that progresses up to about seven and a half, maybe eight feet tall with about a thousand memory marks, we call it, slashes on the wall. And we will have 1,000 names already engraved on there, 1,000 names of enslaved that we know helped to build this university. And uh, we know there are closer to 5,000 total enslaved who helped to build the university. So as we dig into history and get more names, we'll be able to engrave those names on the wall. Well, this is most impressive. Where exactly will it be on grounds? It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's just north and east of the rotunda, just below uh, Brooks Hall. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Right. Close to the corner. uh, Yes. Tell us, I mean, this is all fascinating, Marcus. Uh, It's, uh, and it's it's necessary, obviously. It's essential that we uh, get something of your life's experience by experiencing what is now happening at the University of Virginia on grounds and the added, as you say, it's not enough to plaques and, and statues and things, but you've got to educate people. You've got to make That's people, right. bring them into the fold and you're doing all of that. I wanted to talk before we run out of time because briefly, I say briefly now because you, I heard you were retiring and I was out of town and I couldn't could I couldn't connect with you or whatever and and now here you are back. What what first of all, tell me about the retirement. What what were the plans? Okay, that's a good one. So January first, twenty thirteen, was my official retirement date. Uh, my staff and and family and the university held a wonderful retirement dinner for me um, uh, at the Boarshead Pavilion at the mm-hmm. end of November. Uh, my four children, five grandkids were there, and uh, probably uh, 250, 300 of my you know, friends and colleagues from the university and community were there. Nice. Well represented, quite diverse, uh, including you know, a number of organizations that I'm involved in or, or boards in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, and representing uh, the whole community from those with disabilities, um, to you know the different races, ethnicities, women, men, um, and so forth. Yes. And that was a wonderful event. Well, fully expected to retire January 1st. However, the new chief diversity officer search was just beginning in the late fall. Mm. And I realized, and President Ryan realized, that it would take a while to get the right person in place. Yes. Meanwhile, there are a lot of activities that continue. You know, we had the MLK Community Celebration upon us coming up in January. Yes. I serve as the principal investigator of the Virginia North Carolina Alliance, and that's a Lewis Stokes Alliance for Minority Participation National Science Foundation grant to increase underrepresented minorities getting STEM degrees, science, mm-hmm. technology, engineering, and math. Mm-hmm. Since I'm the principal investigator, I'm the person that has to sign off on, on the funds. Yes. And we've, gener- we've um, been, been granted uh, close to $15 million by National Science Foundation over the past, you know, uh, 12 years, yes. including a million dollars to start a program called Bridge to the Doctorate. That's uh, to bring in graduate students so they go through the process five to six years to get their PhD in STEM fields. Yeah. Somebody has to sign off on those, and we didn't have anybody in place. I so see. I agreed to come back after a 30 day sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> you got to stay away. If you retire, you got to stay away. Yes. You know, I'll come back. It's just a wage faculty, you know, with no university benefits. Yes. I can continue to lead the office and the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion until we get the new chief diversity officer. Just last week, 
of Kevin McDonald, who is Chief Diversity Officer at the University of Missouri, is the person that President Ryan has hired oh, to take my place, okay. effective August the 1st. So, so my, I told my wife, we got to hold off just a little bit more. She wants us yeah. to do more fishing and cramming, <laughs> and uh, I said, I'm ready, but it'll be early August. It'll be, yes, it'll be in the heat of August. Not quite yet. <laughs> Not so fast. Yeah. Well, um, so you were, I guess you answered my other question too, is why did you come back? And Because I know you've been busy, but it's clear you, you had to come back to make this transition happen and to give the university time. And I, and I don't say this is hyperbole. I think it takes time to find someone to follow in your footsteps. I mean, again, you know, it does. And it, it had to be a careful search and... And I'm glad we had you twice. How's that? Yeah, you know? <laughs> I am too. And you know, I've had I've had wonderful opportunities here at the University of Virginia given to me, and I've tried to give back as best I can. When you know, you give back. We were all blessed. Yes. Uh, a couple of things that have happened um, in the last couple of years, uh, 2017, towards the end, the university established a professorship of my name, the Marcus L. Martin Distinguished oh, yes. Professorship of, of Emergency Medicine. Yes. A real honor. Yeah. There are three professorships now here at the university in the names of African-Americans, um, Julian Bond, Thurgood Marshall, and myself. So wow. you know, when, when I think about that company, I, I am truly yes. blessed. What we need, though, is to establish many more. Yes. And for my um, successor and others going forward, we need more professorships in the names of uh, minorities. We need you know, more diverse professorships. The other thing is um, on Founders Day weekend, of the university planted the tree in my honor, oh. and that was that was and it, the tree is overlooking Mammoth Slave Laborer site, looking down towards the hospital, looking over towards Madison Hall, where you know I come to work every yes, day. Yes. And um, I said in my comments uh, upon doing that ceremony yes. that if that tree could hear, could see, uh, could talk, that years from now when my grandchildren and great grandchildren come by and to visit that tree. Mm. You know, I hope the seeds we've planted in diversity, equity, inclusion would have grown as strong as that oak tree would have grown itself by that time. Yes. And um, I won't be around to see it, but uh, they will. Well, that's that's a beautiful thought. I'm sorry that we have to go, Marcus. It's just been an absolute pleasure to talk with you again. I think it's been three or four years since we've done yes, a radio it, show. It's been a while. It's yep. been a while. And uh, we should also mention, you know, you, you breezed right through the... You know, you're the principal investigator of the National Science Foundation, Virginia North Carolina Alliance, and of course, uh, that's extremely important. But but what I want to mention too that you've been party in increasing the number of minority students earning degrees in science and technology and engineering and math by an astounding 174 percent. Yes, sir. Wow. How? Yes, within our lines. Yep. You know. And yet, still, there's so much more to go. I mean, I, I, I don't, right. I don't want to diminish anything with this comment, but I just want to say, in uh, when I first started living here, at least part time, I was asked to direct a, and I won't even name it now because all the personnel has changed. But it was a, a historical reenactment production, mm-hmm. and I did it. But my first question, when uh, the 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 all white board uh, asked me to join and be a part of it. I said, that's great, and let's hold auditions. And when the auditions came, I turned to them and I, and I said, 
well, where are the African Americans and the American mm-hmm. Indians? I mean, really, you know, I mean, Native yep. Americans, yep. and that. How can you tell the history if? Mm-hmm. And they really, uh, Marcus, they really stared at me, like mm-hmm. they just couldn't understand why I was asking. Anyway, right. we 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 did it and we fixed it at yep. least the year I was there. Okay. And our university guides, our students who give tours of the lawn, basically have included the very information you're just talking about, yes. the history of African Americans here and Native Americans at the University of Virginia. We couldn't have the University of Virginia without it, and that's no exaggeration. Marcus, please take us out. Dr. Marcus Martin, take us out with how we continue to help with your successor, the work that you have so well founded and, and rooted for us in on grounds. What can we do? How do we follow up so that your work is uh, constantly sustained? How's that? One uh, talk that I gave in Black Alumni Weekend April 6th of this year was on uh, the uh, uh, past, present, and future diversity, equity, inclusion at the University of Virginia. And that speech can be accessed at you know my website, at the Office of Diversity and Equity website. It's relatively long, but it, it talks about the accomplishments. Um, you know, we've, we've done well collectively as a university and community, increasing the number of minority students. Uh, last year's class was the most diverse ever. This upcoming year's class is going to be even more diverse. You know, over 10 years, we've increased underrepresented uh, minority undergraduate students by 40%, and the same with graduate students. Mm. And the number of uh, minority teaching and research faculty, we've increased by 70%. So that's significant, but the the raw numbers need to continue to increase. Mm -hmm. Uh, The community needs to continue to work together to be, you know, a a loving community, uh, supportive of of the students that that come here. And the new chief diversity officer, he he will be vice president for diversity, equity, inclusion, will also assume the responsibilities of the um, Equal Opportunity and Civil Rights Office. Uh, He will need support. His name is uh, Dr. Kevin McDonald. Mm -hmm. He will need support. And uh, Jim Ryan is on the right path in terms of advancing the work that's already been done. Yes. I think the community has an open door to President Ryan. He, he established the working committee related to community that will continue to serve him in an advisory capacity. But uh, I will be meeting with uh, Dr. McDonald next month, and we'll let him know about this conversation and certainly we'll pass on to him all the things that we've been doing here and, and hope he will continue and, and surpass those things we've done so far. Excellent. All right, then. Thank you so much, Dr. Marcus Martin of University of Virginia, MD. I've rattled off your credits. They are, I think the greatest thing I can say about them, and they are expansive, they are varied, but they are very much at the very fiber of uh, America's diversity. Uh, Thank you, sir. Everything you've done in your life is is now, because of what you've done at university, it's like you just laid it out. This is what I've learned from living, and now I'm sharing it with you through the University of Virginia. Thank you so much, Dr. Marcus Martin, for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. All All the best in this retirement this second time around. Yes, sir. Absolutely. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. Here is Stole the Fawn singing... Forgiveness. I got ghosts here in my way. Yeah, they haunt me every day. 
They got reasons and they got plans Take me out when they get their chance And I can tell you why they're here But that won't make them disappear I ain't saying I'll forget it All the wrongs will ever be right We're just talking about forgiveness How it gives you back your It gives you back your It's never easy being torn apart. Forgive to be forgiven, and it'll open up your heart. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. It's time to question how we bring home what's been lost. Who taught us to focus on rude, crude posturing instead of distinguishing ourselves as everyday heroes sans headlines? What will it take to shift from problem fascination to solution focusing? When will we divorce bewildering bellowing, marry wisdom that permeates time out, and rebirth the family value of peaceful assembly? Where, in a land of the free, does being a patriot award freedom to belittle with abject name-calling or the liberty to assign angry adjectives to nouns of diversity? Why do we increasingly flock like sheep to bah at behest of blah blah of over-consumerism, over-zealous zealots and over-aged politicians pimping redundancy of wolves in sheep's clothing as... The New World Order for the Natural Order of Things. 1. Keeping women in their place. 2. Children seen but not heard. 3. LGBTQ Muslims and Mexicans banned from real citizenship. And finally, the South shall rise again for real. How can we continually turn a blind eye to the consequential discrepancy between an NRA mea culpa projecting the fault of its internal morality hemorrhage as a victim of North aggression? Who can overlook the hourly pretension of media hyperbole accelerating fourth estate demise, partnering with the pomposity of a pretender-in-chief tweeting unsubstantiated slings and arrows of outrageous fortune? What exactly about democratic socialists so irritates conservatives' anti-inclusive, short-sighted militia itch and exposes anti-American lock and load threat to Trump's damaging horde and his damaged objectives alike? Both struggling for very different Americas in a racist presidential swamp, depositing them in an inequitable economic bog. Where is any possible Trump-Pence sting when those who so love the world love it enough to save all life upon it? Because, you see, hate, as a right-wing required acquired taste, is only digestible family value in the hearts manipulated into harboring it. Why is it that the two-thirds of these United States for whom the natural order of things 
has evolved from civil war, mutating into Jim Crow laws, which embolden Ku Klux Klan and ultimately a reality show invasion of all levels of American government, still settles for a rerun of maniacal McCarthyism's scare tactics. How can we not now vote, no matter how tattered our elections and political parties, to resurrect from Trump ashes a good Samaritan patriotism that is honor-bound to elect champions inspired by a duty-bound electorate demanding an all-inclusive American dream? While banning Muslims, spreading presidential manure on less fortunate countries, restricting marriage licenses, gunning down each other in schools, workplaces, and places of worship, we fail our definite major purpose to, as stewards, preserve, protect, and defend the earth and all life upon it. How else then do we emerge from Slave Bible, Green Book, and Faith Movies, through FDR, JFK, MLK, to AOC, a ratified ERA, and incorruptible DOJ? We do so when we stand tall and deliver on the promises we've preached. Colorblind justice, individual eradication of sexual harassment, gender bias, radical bigotry, and the religious hypocrisy of insulting biblical lessons like love thy neighbor as thyself with the asterisk as long as my neighbor looks and thinks as I do. Who among us remembers what America can do when we look for miracles in each other? What contribution can't rainbows mingling with LGBTQ, people of color, and descendants of immigrants make to the United States of America? When will we stop demanding change but voting for those who can't yet fathom there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in a conservative Republican's philosophy? Where is home for a third of Americans who reject the abundant potential of an in-depth foundation of democratic miracles? And why do we forget we didn't have a clue for a cure for tuberculosis, smallpox, polio, mumps, measles, chickenpox, and the flu until we did? So what's next? Climate change and climate injustice. How can America find its way home through the aftermath of Trump confirming what is past is prologue by allowing our Gettysburg Address to define each of us to all of us? To the degree as country and individual, we discover and digest the direct line of America's ascending homegrown tyranny in our nation's current trajectory through Nixon's Watergate, Reagan's trickle-down, Bush Cheney's Great Recession. We will understand how we were bathed in the racism, sexism, religious hypocrisy, and white supremacist prep for Trump-Pence. When, if not Tuesday 3 November 2020, will we progress from our sea to shining sea troubles and by opposing William Barr, Stephen Moore, Mnuchin, Mitch McConnell, Pence, Trump, vainglory mirage, end their reigning weight on our backs. For the freeing truth that hurts most is ignorance is not bliss. Denial is the opiate of cowards and change is terrifying. But progressing forward anyway is the courage of unsung heroes, for without the valiant, humanity and its planetary home are doomed. So now, let us invite the wisdom that comes from investigation, making we the people the affirmation to never again tolerate what we ourselves have wrought. Thank you.
and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.